morning. Numbers, chapter 9, verse 15 to 18, 22 to 23, chapter 10, verse 11 through 13, 33 through 36. On the day of the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law was set up. The cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. And whenever this cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped. And at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. On the twelfth day of the second month, of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. They set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The Lord of, of the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. When the Ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, Lord to the countless thousands of Israel. The word of the Lord. This past week, we just celebrated the 59th anniversary of the March on Washington. On August 28, 1963, a quarter of a million people gathered on the mall in Washington, D.C. to listen to one of the most famous speeches in the history of the world, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream. At the very beginning of the speech, he says this, we have come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. He calls on the country to embrace what he calls the fierce urgency of now. That means this country, this world, is in urgent need of change. And he's saying that if we have an opportunity and the ability to change the world, that we have a moral obligation to do so. Now, it's true that as a country, we are still struggling to fully realize Dr. King's dream of racial justice. Nonetheless, the civil rights movement was one of the most powerful movements 
in the history of the world. And one of the main reasons was because of their practice of nonviolence. But nonviolence does not mean the absence of action. It means a different kind of action. And it changed the country. And the people who did it, whether it was at sit-ins at lunch counters or uh, freedom rides on buses or marching through the streets of Birmingham, they faced unimaginable levels of abuse and violence, whether spitting and name-calling or fire hoses and police dogs or even brutal beatings with chains and lead pipes and billy clubs. How could they do that? Did they just waltz into these um, incredibly high-stress, violent situations and simply refrain from fighting back through sheer willpower? No way. They were trained rigorously so that because they were facing highly organized forces of segregation and hatred that were highly disciplined and deeply formed, the only way they could prevail against those forces is if they were more disciplined and more deeply formed. The only way that they could change the world was by going through a process of transformation for themselves. Friends, here's the point. We long to see a different world, don't we? The challenge is the action that we take to shape the world is always going to be the manifestation of who we already are. So the question is, what's shaping you? Because whatever it is, we bring that with us into the world we seek to change. That means that what the world becomes is always going to be the result of what we are becoming. So do you long to see a different world? Do you long for transformation for yourself? And if so, how does all of that happen? We just began a new series in the book of Numbers. This passage that we just read has answers to those questions for us. So as we walk through this passage, let's see three things that it shows us. It gives us a vision for the world, a vision for you, and lastly, there's a vision of glory. There's a vision for the world, a vision for you, and a vision of glory, okay? First, there's a vision for the world. Now, as we did last week, let's remember the backstory. Um, At the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, God creates this world to be a place of blessing. In fact, in, in Genesis 1, when He creates the first humans, it says that He blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, this word blessed is so important. We're going to do another review this week. In our culture, we have a very trivial understanding of blessing, a very superficial understanding. I mean, it has its own hashtag. But in the Bible, blessing means first to see deep inside the truest, deepest nature of something, and then second, to summon forth the full potential of that thing. So, in other words, blessing means to see the caterpillar and summon forth the butterfly. It means to see the seed and summon forth the rose. God created this world to be a place of blessing, but instead of blessing, the first human beings rebelled against God, and instead of being or becoming what God created them to be, they decided they wanted to be what they wanted to be. And as a result, instead of being a place of blessing, this world is now under a curse. Everything is falling apart. And as a result, what was God's response to that? Well, moving through the story, in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to become the father of the nation of Israel. And Israel's whole purpose in the world was to, um, was to bring God's blessing back to a world 
that's falling apart. And you see that in Genesis 12. God promises Abraham three big things. He said, first, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great people. Secondly, he said, I'm going to lead you to a land. And then thirdly, he said, through you, I'm going to bring my blessing to all the other nations of the world. People, land, and blessing. These promises are absolutely essential for understanding everything that's happening in the book of Numbers. Because by the time we get to Numbers, what's happening? God has rescued the people of Israel from slavery. Now here in Numbers, he's leading them through the wilderness to the promised land, but why? What is the reason that Israel is going to the promised land? Is it just so they can kick back and be fat and happy and enjoy themselves? Well, let's take a closer look. The first nine chapters of the book of Numbers are a description of the layout of the Israelites' camp. And we looked at this last week. Remember this diagram? The whole layout of the camp was centered around this tent. Uh, It's called the tabernacle. It was the very center of their camp. That means that everything in their lives, everything in the camp is centered around the presence of God because that's what the tabernacle was. But then, um, so chapter 9 describes it like this. It says, on the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered it from evening till morning. The cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. Now, the cloud, this is the glorious presence of God. And it covers the tabernacle. So their whole camp, their whole lives is centered around this glory cloud of God. But then in chapter 10, God says, all right, Israel, are you ready? Road trip. It says this, on the 20th day of the second month of the second year after they came out of slavery, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle. Now, um, this is the sign. When the cloud lifts, this is the sign that they're um, supposed to set out. And it says that the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, that's this chest that carries the Ten Commandments, that that was supposed to go before them and lead them along the way. So it says it like this, that then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and they traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. So here we are, the journey has just begun. They're on their way to the promised land, but why? Why is Israel going to the land? Friends, this is why we spent so much time just now talking about the blessing and the promises of God to Abraham. The reason is this, it's that God's people are part of God's mission to bring God's blessing to a world that's falling apart. God's people are part of God's mission to bring God's blessing to a world that's falling apart because the presence of the people in the land is to carry the presence of God into the midst of the whole world. In other words, God is um, very committed to the fierce urgency of now, as Dr. King put it. Because if you think about it, um, you really see this at the very end of chapter 10. It really comes out in a powerful way. Uh, It says that whenever the ark set out, Moses would stand up and he would say a prayer. He would say, rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And whenever the ark came to rest, he said, return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Now, what does this mean? This speech is kind of like, you know how in movies, a lot of times, there'll be a character, oftentimes closer to the end of the movie, that will give some speech, and that tells you kind of the main message of what the whole movie was about? So, for instance, in Kung Fu Panda, Poe the panda is feeling discouraged, 
His dad says, Poe, don't be discouraged. You remember my secret ingredient soup? Let me tell you a secret. There is no secret ingredient in my secret ingredient soup. In order for something to be special, you just have to believe that it's special. That speech is the main message for the whole movie. Friends, the book of Numbers is full of little speeches like that that tell you the main point for different sections. And this speech of Moses is one of the biggest examples of this. So if we go back to the speech, remember Moses says two big things. Number one, he says, God, may your enemies be scattered. That means that God is rescuing the world from evil. Number two, he says, Lord, return to Israel. That means, God, may your glorious healing, renewing presence come back and rest upon your people. This is two big promises. It's a promise that God is going to rescue from evil and a promise that he's going to renew the world. Friends, God's promise of rescue and renewal is the main storyline of the whole Bible. So hundreds of years later, when Jesus shows up and starts talking about the kingdom of God, every Jewish person in his audience would have known, oh, he's talking about um, God's promise to rescue us from evil and renew the world. The kingdom of God is a story of rescue and renewal. Friends, why is it that Dr. King's dream of the fierce urgency of now stirs our hearts so much? It's because we long for a world made new. There's something inside every human being that remembers the blessing we were created for. It's like phantom pain. You know, when people lose a limb, oftentimes they will feel pain where that limb used to be. If this world is all there is, why do we feel so strongly that something is missing? If this world is all there is, why do we feel so strongly that this world is not the way it's supposed to be? If this world is all there is, It's already exactly the way it's supposed to be. So why do we feel this pain? It's phantom pain. We're suffering from the absence of something that we were created for. Friends, God's mission in this world is to restore the limb. It's to bring back the blessing. It's to look deep inside of you and summon forth that true self you were created to be. It's to look deep inside this world and summon forth everything this world was created to be. That mission of God has never ended. And so when Jesus showed up, in many ways he was rebooting the mission of Israel. That means that the church is like Israel 2.0. God's people are part of God's mission to bring God's blessing to a world that's falling apart. That's the first thing we see here, but that leads to our next point. We've just seen a vision for the world, but secondly, we see a vision for you. God told Israel, remember, to build this tabernacle. That's the place of God's glorious presence. And then he told them to form their whole lives, to form their whole camp around the glorious presence of God. So if we were to picture this as concentric circles, it it would look like this. At the very center is the glory of God. Moving outward, the next circle would be the formation of their lives around the glory of God, but it doesn't stop there. Moving outward, the next outward circle is the mission of God moving out into the world. Do you see that? Glory, formation, mission. I know the words are kind of small, but that's what's going on here. But Notice what's going on in chapter 10. In chapter 10, the mission is starting. The people are moving. And as soon as that happens, as soon as the action gets going, we read something kind of weird. 
In chapter 9, verse 17, it says this, that whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. So the lifting and and setting of the cloud, remember, the cloud is the glory of God. And that's the thing that's leading them through the wilderness. But here's what's kind of weird. Um, It goes on to say this, that whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. Now think about this. By the time the cloud sets out and they get on their journey, they've already been camping for a whole year at this point. And now that they finally start to set out on the road, God goes ahead and says, hey, by the way, if my cloud stays over the camp for another year, you are to stay where you are and not move, but to, but to stay remained in camp. What is going on with that? I mean, what happened to the fierce urgency of now? If this world is in such urgent need of rescue and renewal, then why delay like this? Here's why. It's because human beings are spiritual beings. And that does not mean that we are disembodied. It means that human beings are more than just our physical bodies. For instance, Ross Douthat is a Catholic writer for the New York Times. Uh, Several years ago, he was on Real Time with Bill Maher. If you don't know him, Bill Maher is an outspoken atheist who, um, he likes to poke fun at religious people. Um, They had an interesting conversation, and Bill Maher asked Ross Douthat, hey, Ross, you're an intelligent guy, he said. How could you possibly believe in a talking snake? Which is from Genesis 3, this snake tempting Adam and Eve. You're an intelligent guy. How could you believe in a talking snake? Ross Douthat says, well, you ask how an otherwise intelligent person can believe in something metaphysical. Now, metaphysical is just a fancy way of talking about something that is beyond this physical world, beyond this material world. He goes on to say this, what is the idea of human rights if not a metaphysical principle? Can you find universal human rights under a microscope? It's a great question. He's saying human beings are spiritual beings because we are intuitively aware of realities that go beyond this material, physical world, things like universal human rights or that phantom pain that we feel. This goes beyond the physical world, and we're aware of it. Human beings are spiritual beings, and because we're spiritual beings, that means that we are always, all of us, always being spiritually formed, whether you believe in God or not. You are always being formed. You have been formed by the family that you grew up in, by the experiences you've had in life, by um, the culture that you inhabit, and all of that shapes the way you see yourself. It shapes the way you see the world, so that, so that we're always developing habits and patterns and responses to the world around us, things that we use to protect ourselves or to navigate relationships or to navigate the world. Every single one of us is being formed, and because we're spiritual beings, we're always being spiritually formed, whether you believe in God or not. So, for instance, we already mentioned this, that uh, our community groups right now are working through a little book by Robert Mulholland called Invitation to a journey. Um, And by the way, people have asked me, is this book a study of the book of Numbers? It's not. And I apologize because I should have made that um, clear to everyone. But um, both books, both this book and the book of Numbers are talking about spiritual formation. 
And so there is a lot of overlap between the two books. And as we go through our sermon series, I'll be referring to places where the books overlap. Now, in the very uh, first chapter, Robert Mulholland says this. He says, everyone is in a process of spiritual formation. Friends, remember the question, why would God, as soon as the Israelites start moving and going out on mission, why, why would he call them to remain in place? Why would he delay the mission? Why would he not send them out on mission right away? The answer is because they're spiritual beings, and they have had a spiritual formation. They are coming out of hundreds of years of slavery. They have had a spiritual formation, but it's a spiritual deformation, and they need to be spiritually reformed. If you've ever come out of abuse or trauma or addiction, you know that you don't just get over that in a few days. It can often take years to recover from something like that. So, for instance, I got sober when I was 28 years old. And for the 14 years leading up to that time, my whole life had been centered around acquiring and consuming toxic amounts of alcohol, weed, and crystal meth. I had been spiritually formed by that, actually spiritually deformed, and I needed to be spiritually reformed. And it starts with just very basic, simple things, like get up at a normal time. Um, get on your knees and ask God to help you stay sober that day. Take a shower, brush your teeth, go to a meeting with other alcoholics, go to work, eat a healthy meal, go to another meeting with alcoholics, get on your knees before you go to bed and ask God, thank, say thank you for another day of sobriety, then go to bed at a normal time, wash, rinse, repeat. My life had been spiritually deformed. I needed to be spiritually reformed. Why? Here's how Robert Mulholland continues in the book. He says, we are being shaped into either the wholeness of the image of Christ or a horribly destructive caricature of that image. Destructive not only to ourselves, but also to others, for we inflict our brokenness upon them. I, that phrase, inflict our brokenness, man, I, you know, it's just such a memorable phrase. And one of the reasons I love this book is because it's full of very memorable phrases like this. Have you ever had one of those terrifying moments of clarity when you realize that you have inflicted your brokenness on somebody? I do all the time. That means that my life is still in desperate need. There are huge parts of my life that are still in desperate need of deeper spiritual formation in the image of Jesus. If our lives are not being formed more and more deeply in the image of Jesus, then we end up inflicting our brokenness on the world around us. And once we understand that, we realize that the fierce urgency of now doesn't just describe the world, does it? It describes us. So, yes, God's mission in this world is to bring His blessing back to a world that's falling apart, and He does call His people, you and me, to be a part of that mission. But one of the big messages in this passage we're reading is that God doesn't just want to do something through you. God wants to do something in you. That no matter how important all of the things that we're seeking to accomplish in, in this world are, and they are important, that no matter how important they are, no matter how urgent they are, if we're not being formed more deeply in the image of Jesus, then whatever we are, we just bring that into the world and we inflict the world with our brokenness. That means that, that God's big project is He doesn't just want to do something through you, God wants to do something in you. And that leads to our last point. We've seen a vision for the world. We've just seen 
a vision for you. But lastly, we need to see a vision of glory. Because here's the big question. What does all of this look like, practically speaking, for our lives? Well, first of all, we just need to say the reality. Spiritual formation is a lifelong process. In the next 10 minutes, we're not going to cover all of it. Even this book, you know, I'm, one of the reasons I'm having people read um, Invitation to a Journey is because it's dipping your toes into the water. The book is an introduction to a deeper layer, deeper levels of, of spiritual formation. Things that go beyond just, you know, going to church and reading your Bible. A deeper level of spiritual formation. We're just dipping our toes in the water. Even going through a sermon series on, through the book of Numbers. We'll talk about more ways that this happens. But in this passage, there's one big thing that's here. And if I were um, to pick one big thing, that, if I was hard-pressed to say the most important thing in the journey of spiritual formation, I might pick what we see in this passage. What is it? Well, remember, the passage begins like this. It says, On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. I love this phrase, that is how it continued to be. In other words, the glory of God was continuously visible to the Israelites. And and glory, the word literally means weightiness. The the glory of God is the, the beauty of God. The glory of God is, it's the palpable reality of God. It was like a cloud by day and a fire by night. It was like a light that never went out for the Israelites. Here's why this is so important. In the next verse, it says, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. Now, notice the cloud is lifting or the cloud is setting, the cloud is, is, is staying, or the cloud is moving. But wherever the cloud goes, that's where they go. We could put it like this. What was the dominating question that determined everything else that was going on in their life? Was the question, hey, should we stay put or, sh- or should we move out on mission? Was the question, hey, should we get out in the world and do all kinds of great things for God? No. The question that dominated and determined everything else in their life was, where is the glory of God? Everything else hung on this question for them. To use a slightly silly example, it's kind of like cats chasing laser pointers. You know, like every, those cats are focused on whatever that tiny little red dot of light is, is doing, wherever it goes, that's where the cat goes. Their eyes, their attention, their awareness, everything in their being is hyper-focused on that tiny red dot of light. It's the same thing for the Israelites. They're seeking, they're pursuing, they're chasing the glory of God. Wherever the glory goes, that's where they go. If the glory stays, they stay. If the glory moves out on mission, they go out on mission. But the point is not going or staying, doing or not doing. The point is, where is the glory of God? Because wherever the glory is, that's where they are. That means that before they ever do anything for God, even more important is simply being with God. So if we could go back to those concentric circles, remember at the center is the glory of God. The next circle moving outward is our formation around the glory of God. The next circle moving outward is is the mission of God, going out into the world and bringing um, God's blessing to a world that's falling apart. But what determines the mission? It's the glory of God. 
that everything centers on the glory of God. Wherever the glory goes, they go. If the glory is out on mission, they're out on mission. If the glory stays, they stay. Everything is determined by the glory of God. Where the glory goes, they go. It's like a light that never goes out. Before they ever do anything for God, even more important is simply being with God. So, for instance, when Jesus was getting ready to appoint the 12 apostles, and remember, these are the guys that are supposed to go out into the world. They're rebooting the mission of Israel. In Mark chapter 3, it says that he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Before they go out and start preaching the gospel and casting out demons, before any of that happens, it's just about being with Jesus. Or in John chapter 15, the night before he was crucified, Jesus says, whoever abides in me bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus is saying, before you go out into the world and do anything, be with me. Before you go out into the world and engage in my mission to bring blessing to a world that's falling apart, abide in me. Be with me. Abide in me. Before we ever do anything for God, even more important is simply being with God. So how do we cultivate an ever greater and deeper awareness of the presence of God in our lives? I can imagine uh, the thought of that might freak us out a little bit. I can imagine we saying things like, wait a minute, now are, all of a sudden does this mean I have a bunch of extra things to do in my life? I'm already exhausted. I'm already on the edge of burnout, and now you want me to do extra things in my life. You know, it's indubitable that we live in a meritocratic culture. In our culture, it's all about doing and performing and achieving and, and, and just do, 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 do. Perform, 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 perform. And all of a sudden, now you're saying do extra things. Here's the point. It's not about doing extra things. It's about doing different things. When I got sober, it meant I stopped doing <laughs> certain things and I started doing different things. Or in the civil rights movement, nonviolence doesn't mean the absence of action. It means a different kind of action. It's not about doing extra things. It's about doing different things. So what would this look like in your life to do different things? Well, in the book, Invitation to a Journey, every chapter has a spiritual exercise. That's a wonderful way to start doing different things. Now, I encourage you to, to do those exercises. Or, you know, whatever you do in the morning, I don't know, you know, what if you took or stole five minutes from whatever you normally do and spent those five minutes doing something different? And I understand if you have kids, maybe your morning is spent taking care of kids. But maybe when they take a nap, what do you normally do? Take, steal five minutes from whatever you normally do, and you do something different. You spend it in the presence of God. And that could look different ways, but for instance, what if five minutes, okay, the first two minutes, maybe you, um, you read a paragraph, just one paragraph in the Bible, or even just one sentence. The point is not to rush through it, but to let it really sink into you, to be with God. And then maybe the next two minutes, Take that time and silently focus your loving attention on God. In silence, for two minutes, focus your loving attention on God. That's a lot harder than it sounds because after 10 minutes, I guarantee you, your mind will be somewhere else after 10 seconds. But to just take two minutes, set a timer that actually makes it a lot easier to focus yourself on God, to focus your loving attention on God. And then maybe for the last minute, 
What if you were to just pray about what happened in those first four minutes or pray about the day that's um, in front of you or to maybe pray slowly through something like the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven? Five minutes a day. And then what if you were to do that three times a day, maybe morning, afternoon, and evening? That's 15 minutes a day total. I guarantee you, if you were to do something like that, five minutes, three times a day, that is going to change you way more profoundly than trying to do something for an hour and a half once a week. And by the way, neuroscience totally backs this up. It's rewiring your brain when you do this, but it's not us changing ourselves. It's bringing ourselves into the presence of God so that God can change us that wherever the glory is, that's where we want to be. It's like a light that never goes out. Have you ever um, heard about these crazy people that get in their trucks and chase tornadoes? They're called storm chasers. And if you've ever seen the videos they make, um, they're like chasing these giant pillars of cloud that are roaring across the landscape, and they're utterly consumed with chasing these things. Wherever the the pillar of cloud goes, that's where they go. And on the one hand, it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, if you get too close to a tornado, that thing is going to rip you apart. But on the other hand, in the biggest storms, in the cyclones, there's something called the eye of the storm. It's actually the safest place to be. It's a place of great calm and peace, even in the midst of a storm that's raging around you. Friends, God is calling us to something even crazier and ultimately even more thrilling than being a storm chaser. It's being a glory chaser. It's being a cloud chaser. That wherever the glory goes, that's where you want to be. If the glory's out on mission, you're out on mission. But if the glory stays, you stay. The point is being in the presence of God before we ever do anything for God even more important is simply being in the presence with God. And friends, the reason we can do that is because Jesus Christ is the glory of God. Jesus is the light of God. Jesus is the tabernacle. We saw this last week in the Gospel of John. It tells us that Jesus is the Word of God who became flesh. That means He became a human being and He dwelt. The word literally means Jesus tabernacled here on earth. Jesus Christ is the glorious presence of God, the glory of God dwelling here on earth. But the only way the tabernacle can be the place of God's presence is because the tabernacle is also the place of sacrifice. We're always chasing some other glory, aren't we? Instead of God looking deep inside of us and summoning forth the self that he created us to be, instead we want to define ourselves over against God. And when we do that, we're always breaking ourselves. Our our relationship with God is broken. We're always inflicting our brokenness on the world around us. And the only way that gets set right is if someone else is broken in our place so that our relationship with God could be mended. Friends, that is exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because on the cross, for, for throughout his life, there was never a moment in Jesus' life when the light wasn't constantly shining. That is how it continued to be for Jesus. The presence of God was always with him, always dwelling in him. The glory of God was manifested in and through his life. There was never a moment in his life when the light wasn't shining in Jesus. But on the cross, the light went out. The presence disappeared. 
and the face of God the Father was turned away from Jesus in judgment so that it could be like a light, a fire, shining on you continually in love, drawing you back into the glory of God, back into the presence of God, summoning forth the true self that God created you to be. Friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is like a light that never goes out. It happened in history so that even in the darkest night, it could be like a fire shining continually before you. The Gospel of John tells us, do you want to see the glory of God? Jesus said, Father, the time has come. Be glorified. As he was getting ready to go to the cross, Jesus said, now is the hour that I am about to be glorified. Jesus is saying, do you want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus hanging on the cross. That is the glory of God. It's a light that is continually shining. It happened in history so that you would never have to know a moment in your life that the light is not continually shining. God doesn't just want to do things through you. God wants to do something in you. He wants to dwell in you. He wants to transform you. He wants to turn you into a light and turn his whole church into a light that would go into the world and bring his blessing back to a world that's falling apart. Are you chasing the cloud? It will change you forever. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we may not always be aware of it, but Lord, the thing we need and want more than anything else, the thing that we hunger for more than anything else, the pain, the absence, the thing that we were created for more than anything else is your glory, your beauty, your presence. We need it more than anything else. World, this, this world needs your glory more than anything else. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to come and, and chase your glory in our lives, that we would be transformed and that we would become ever um, more powerful agents and vehicles of your mission to bring your blessing back to a world that's falling apart. Father, wherever your glory is, that's where we want to be. Help us this morning, whether we've been following for years or whether we're just exploring faith, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we would see your glory and that wherever your glory is, that's where we would want to be. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.